The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I think I'll go ahead and start. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we have to study tonight and uh, grateful for it, grateful for those that have made the trip tonight. And uh, Father, I pray that they would uh, be rewarded by a, a deeper understanding of you, knowledge of your will and of your person. And Father, I thank you that there are in this church a large number of people that are hungry and thirsty for your word and to know you, who do not um, shy away from embracing even difficult studies of the word like we're going to embark on tonight in the doctrine of the Trinity. And Father, I pray that you would please give us a strength to persevere in studying your word. Help us, O oh Lord, to uh, not ask immediately, how is this relevant to my life, but just to absorb it because it's true and biblical. Help us, O oh Lord, to walk in your ways and obey your commands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you have the handout, and from my prayer you can tell that tonight we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. Just in terms of Acts, uh, for the next few weeks, this will be pretty much the only game in town if you're not a teacher, uh, adult Sunday school teacher. Um, so we'll be doing systematic theology for the next few weeks, and then we'll be going, getting uh, again into the normal cycle of Acts with uh, three options. As I remember, the three options are there's going to be um, a, st- a study on the Christian in the workplace, and that'll involve um, work ethics, but also uh, workplace evangelism. Scott Markley's going to teach that, and that's going to be wonderful. I really believe the workplace is the place for evangelism, better than anything else, better than even the neighborhoods these days. Because neighborhoods are really, it's really hard to know your neighbors. People are, it really have a, a drawbridge trap, you know, you know, they're pulled in. And you go ring, on, ring somebody's doorbell and knock on their door, they're shocked. They didn't know it still worked, first of all. They hadn't heard it and didn't know what that sound was. It's, it's really hard. And, and it doesn't mean you can't do it. But at the workplace, that's where most of us interact with non-Christians over a long period of time and are able to build up relationships. So uh, that's going to be a great study, and um, I would love to attend, except that I'm going to be teaching this, which is systematic theology, and we're going to continue on in Grudem. The third course is uh, Josh Smith, and he's going to teach basically a missions course, history of missions, uh, through biographical study. So heroes of missions, as we've done biblical heroes or church heroes in the past, church history heroes. This will be uh, heroes of, of the missions movement, and that will be exciting as well. And then, obviously, the, the Sunday school teacher uh, training will continue on and uh, the youth ministry as well. So, but tonight we're looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. And another thing that I mentioned, one of the things that I mentioned in my prayer, um, I think it's good for us to study Scripture and it's good for us to study theology uh, for its own sake to see if it's biblically accurate and true without immediately asking, how is this relevant to my everyday life? Could you tell me, could any of you tell me how a thorough and careful understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity would be immediately relevant to your everyday life? Steve. I think it's relevant to your marriage. To your marriage. Tell me how... That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Paul. And this is one of the studies that touches, topics that touches everything. I mean, you can't pray correctly unless you understand who God is. Mm-hmm. And the Trinity is just intrinsically who God is. That's wonderful. Well, you're encouraging me, Steve. All relationships stem from God's That's right. I think it would be impossible for us to understand what it means to be created in the image of God without understanding the Trinity. So that's good. All relationships including the marriage relationship. Others, how would this connect to your everyday life, a study of the doctrine of the Trinity? Yeah, go ahead. Um, this is so amazing. I, I talked with a, a girl from Bangladesh today about mm-hmm. the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And she gave me a hard time. <laughs> one moment. I'm like silently asking God to help me. Mm-hmm. And I told Doris, I walked in and I saw this and it just blew my mind. Well, I'm encouraged. <laughs> Now I'm really motivated to teach. Boy, that is wonderful. Well, yeah, you know, one of the things that... Yeah, just just the fact that these days, more and more, we're being told that basically Christians and Muslims worship the same God. This doctrine separates us from Christians and Muslims. They do not believe the Trinity. They believe in one God, Allah, but they do not believe in a Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
And so actually the doctrine of Trinity is essential to our faith. It is, this, is, this is a major doctrinal issue. If you disagree with um, the traditional, what is known as Catholic or universal position on the doctrine of the Trinity, you're a heretic, basically. You're not a Christian. You're, you're a false believer. This is not an optional doctrine. It's not like we can, we can uh, disagree or agree to disagree on this one. This is something we would break fellowship over if we did not agree on this. And so this is of, of the par- most paramount importance. Now let's try to define what we're talking about. One of the things that Jehovah's Witnesses or others will point out is that you will not find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. It is a construct uh, and a theological term that you will not find. If you had a computer Bible and did a search, you'd come up empty on the word Trinity. It's not there. But that doesn't mean that the doctrine is not true. It just means that the word that uh, theologians after the Bible was written came up with is not found there. Wayne Grudem defines the doctrine of the Trinity as this. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. Okay? Well, for those of you that like a more pictorial representation, look to the back of your your outline. And some of you have been through the membership class will remember this. Um, But uh, I've given you there, not the three major heresies, but the doctrine of the Trinity. You see the triangle there. And as I mentioned in the membership class, I am not suggesting that God is a triangle. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, in the time that we're studying the doctrine of the Trinity, both this time and God willing next time, uh, I don't think there's any earthly analogy to the Trinity. I've heard them all and they all are deficient, every one of them. Ra- rather, the doctrine of the Trinity is a series of statements that can be put together and supported uh, biblically. And you put the doctrine together uh, theologically. But... You know, you can't find an analogy for the Trinity anywhere in the created world. You won't. The closest, I think, would be the human being, uh, a human person, him or herself. We are creating the image of God. Um, and so we are body and spirit, etc. But even there, there is, there, is no, there is no direct connection between us and the Trinity itself. Um, but the doctrine is organized in this triangle with a circle in the center. So are you all looking at this diagram? Basically, the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity is first and foremost, right in the center, that there is one and only one God. You see that? One God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there is a God and there is only one God. That's at the center. At the top... The word Father, at the lower left, you've got the word Son. At the lower right, you've got the word Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity also teaches that the Father is the one God and that the Son is the one God and that the Holy Spirit is the one God. The doctrine of the Trinity also teaches that the Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit, nor is the Holy Spirit the Father, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, nor is the Holy Spirit the Son. There it is. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, raise your hand if you completely understand that. <laughs> Good, because anyone who raise your hand, I'm going to sit down and you can explain it to me. Because the fact of the matter is, we cannot fully comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity. We can't. We have to just accept it by faith. It doesn't really make sense to us. It would contradict our reason or our uh, ration, rationality. I would say it doesn't contradict, it just goes beyond it. It just goes beyond it. leaves our reason in the dust. Now, in the past, others have found this doctrine to be ludicrous and unreasonable and rejected it. The Unitarians, for example, are a good example of people that rejected the doctrine of the Trinity because it made no sense. Rationalism, uh, philosophy coming over from the continent affected our founding fathers of our nation. Rationalism and deism was just floating around and people like Thomas Jefferson and... Uh, who wrote uh, Common Sense? Uh, Thomas Paine and others. Just, they just couldn't accept the doctrine of the Trinity. They believed in a, uh, an all-seeing being of some sort, but they couldn't accept the Trinity. And why? Because it made no sense. You, you look at these things and try to put it together and it, it runs contradictory to our logic. But that's okay. As I mentioned in the, in the uh, new member class, a quote from Augustine that helps ease the tension on this for me. Augustine said, on the doctrine of the Trinity, said, show me a worm who can understand a man and I will show you a man who can understand God. 
what is he doing? He's saying that we are of a higher order of being than the worm. And the worm cannot understand you, cannot comprehend you. Neither can you fully comprehend or take in God. And so we just simply have to accept this. Any attempt to simplify the doctrine of the Trinity usually ends up in a well-known heresy. And, the, and people have done them, and we're going to talk about them. Uh, you've got another triangle in there, and we're going to talk about that in due time. But the fact of the matter is, this is what the Bible teaches. There is one God and only one God. The Father is the one God. The Son is the one God. The Spirit is the one God. And yet the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct persons, one from another. All right? Any questions so far? Other than how can this be? I mean, I, I, can't, I can't answer. It just is. But this is what the Bible teaches. Now, let's look at the Athanasian Creed. Go back to the front cover of the, of the uh, outline, the Trinity. Athanasius is one of the heroes of church history. He stood up at a key time and opposed a heresy called Arianism. Arianism is still around, alive and well today. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, Satan pulled it out of the freezer and popped it in the microwave and called it Jehovah's Witnesses. All right, But it's the same thing. It's, a, it's the, the idea that Jesus is a powerful created being, the most powerful created being that there ever was. But he's not God. He's not Yahweh. He's not Jehovah the Creator. That's the idea, okay? Well, Athanasius came along and little by little, this concept took root and grew and started to dominate the Christian world around the Mediterranean where the Roman Empire were and all, all that. This is early on, 4th century or so. And he came along and just basically stood alone for a while in opposing it and said, this is heresy, it's wrong. And the po political process was against him. He had to leave his post and run for his life several times. There was a time in which a friend came and just broke the news and said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And he answered, then Athanasius is against the world. I'm not wrong, you know. So he stood firm and wouldn't give up. And little by little, the tide started to turn. And they started to, uh, to move out. Um, and uh, those that believe what we came to call the Catholic or universally held doctrine of the Trinity won, won the day. What's interesting is if you look at the history of the missions movement, a lot of the most aggressive and powerful missionaries were actually Arians. And so I don't count them. They're like Jehovah's Witnesses, basically. They went out denying the deity of Christ but preaching boldly to these Germanic tribes and all that and winning converts to a false Christianity. But that's another lecture for another day. Athanasius put together this creed. And look what it says. The Catholic or universal faith, and don't let the word Catholic disturb you. Nowadays, we just say Catholic. Really, what you mean is Roman Catholic. But what the word means is universal or that which is held by all believers around the world. That's what the word Catholic means. The Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance or essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Spirit. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. That's the, that's the Athanasian statement on the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, this next block on the front page is an overview of where we're going to go. We're not going to get all there tonight. But this is the scriptural basis for the doctrine of the Trinity. <coughs> the doctrine of the Trinity is progressively revealed in scripture. We're going to talk about that. First of all, this is a revealed doctrine. You can't figure this out. You couldn't sit in a meditating cell and come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. No pagans have ever come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. We had to have this told to us. It had to be revealed by what we call special revelation by the Scripture. This is a revealed doctrine. There is a partial revelation of the Trinity in the Old Testament. But there is a full and complete revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament. Three statements summarize the biblical teaching. I already gave it to you on the back there in that chart. God is, is three persons. Each person is fully God and there is only one God. Simplistic solutions must all deny one strand of biblical teaching. 
Let me, get, let me give you an example of what, what we mean. Have you ever heard the analogy on the doctrine of the Trinity that I am, for example, a pastor, I'm a father, and I'm also a son all at the same time? What's wrong with that analogy to the Trinity? What's the, what's the problem with that as, a, as an analogy to the doctrine of the Trinity? Can't separate the three. Do you have, for example, three persons with me? If I am a pastor, I am a father, and I am a son, do we have three persons? Can I, the pastor, talk to me, the father? Well, I, if that goes on too long, you're going to start to worry. <laughs> Especially if one of them answers back. That's when you know, all right, we've got problems. And we all may talk to ourselves from time to time, but it's when we answer back, that's when you, you know. And if, the, if you're doing that, please come talk to me because, you know, I really, you know, I, I want to, you know, I want to help. Um, that is modalism, actually. That analogy is actually modalism. The idea that there is one God who has in different parts of history revealed himself in different ways. The big problem with modalism is who was Jesus praying to and who answered him. You know, that's the big problem with modalism, okay? But anyway, there's a lot of analogies. The clover, you know, and the triple point of water. I've heard them all, you know. The egg. I, I tell you what, there's all kinds of interesting things, but none of them, none of them, uh, are accurate. All of them will deny one of these three strands of biblical teaching. All analogies have shortcomings. God eternally and necessarily exists as a trinity. If the trinity ceases to exist, the universe ceases to exist. The trinity cannot cease to exist. Parenthetically, how would that help you to understand what did and specifically what did not happen at the cross? Okay? What was not going on at the cross when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about that with me now. If the, if the doctrine of the Trinity is eternal, if God is always existing as Father, Son, and Spirit, what, is that, what does that teach you about the cross and what was not going on at the cross? Was Jesus stripped of his deity at the cross? No. So when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has not stopped to be God the Son at that moment. He's still God the Son. He is eternally God the Son. Something else was going on. Now, we're not talking about the atonement tonight. But what I want you to, to see is this is a rock-solid foundation for the existence of the universe. It can never stop being that way. God never changes. And so when we sing, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, he laid his glory by, but he didn't lay his deity by. Okay? He was still God the Son in the flesh. Okay, So we'll, I'll tell you what, we're plumbing the depths when you start looking at the doctrine of the Incarnation and the Trinity. But I want you to understand this is an eternal thing. It has always been this way. Errors have come from denying any of the three summary statements. We already touched on this. But modalism denies that there are three persons able to interact with each other. Uh, by the way, um, the United Pentecostal Church is modalistic. The UPC, have you ever heard of them? Uh, I think we may have one in this area. I don't know. Um, they basically believe that there is only one God and he just reveals himself at different times, either as God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit. That's just modalism. It's an old heresy. Okay? Um, Arianism denies the full deity of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Those are the Jehovah's Witnesses. Tritheism is just another word for polytheism. It just says, whatever, they're all, we have three gods. Let's just be honest now. Come on. Stop trying to make them all one. We have three gods. We have the Father and he's God, the Son, he's God, and the Spirit. He's a God. Okay? That's a, a heresy as well. And then uh, finally, we're going to be looking at the distinctions between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. What are the differences between them? They have different functions in relating to the world. That's what we want to teach. They're essentially united, but they have a different relationship to the world. The Father does certain things the Son doesn't do. The Son does certain things that the Father doesn't do, and, and the Spirit does things that the Father and the Son don't do. Uh, these functions have existed from eternity past. Their function toward the world has always been the same. Uh, what is the relationship between the persons and the being of God? How do we understand that? And can we really understand this doctrine? Can we understand the doctrine of the Trinity? And then finally, we're going we're gonna to look at some application. Okay, That's kind of an overview. Let's look at the scriptural basis for the doctrine of the Trinity. And Jill already talked about how important it is to be able to put your finger on some verses to support this doctrine. You know, we're, we're becoming more and more pluralistic in America. This is not going to be a given in 20 years that your neighbors will believe the doctrine of the Trinity. The church must therefore teach it all the louder and more clearly. We must be very clear on this doctrine. We, not, we must know how to trace it back from Scripture. We have to know where to find it in the Bible. All right, And that's part of what we want to accomplish tonight. The first thing we already talked about to some degree is that this is a revealed doctrine. Louis Burkhoff put it this way. The doctrine of the Trinity is very decidedly a doctrine of revelation. 
It is a doctrine which we would not have known nor have been able to maintain with any degree of confidence on the basis of experience alone and which is brought to our knowledge only by God's special revelation. Therefore, it is of the utmost importance that we gather the scriptural proofs for it. Do you see that? You can't deduce this. You can't um, meditate on it, come up with it through philosophy. Plato didn't come up with it. Plato posited a supreme being and a deity, but not a trinity. And so these are things that we must draw from Scripture. Louis Burkhoff is right. We must know where it is found in the Bible. How can we trace it out? Now, the first thing that we talked about is that we have only a partial revelation of the Trinity in the Old Testament, not a full disclosure. We have indications rather than a full revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity. The first of these statements in which God speaks is a plural in the Old Testament, the let us kind of statements. We get it, for example, in the creation of man in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image. I could have underlined the word our as well. In our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So here we see the plural kind of language, let us make man in our image. And then in the second part of the, in, in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. You get the singular there at that point. And so this is a, you know, an indication of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, others who interpret this passage, evangelicals even, don't say that this does not show the Trinity, but rather that God is speaking within a heavenly council. All right? For example, working within angels. He's, you know, and there is a council of angels, and I do believe that angelic beings, spiritual beings were created first. The problem I have with that is the second part, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. So the our image of verse 26 is the same image that was created in verse 27. It's not an angelic image. It's the image of God. And so the us or our in verse 26 has to be within the, the Godhead himself. Do you see that? If you put verse 26 and verse 27 together, you get the us and our, and it must refer to God because in verse 27, so God made man in his image. You see the, how the two connect. So the plural language is within the Godhead, and therefore it's an indication of the Trinity. Do you see that? By the way, have you ever heard of the, the book? Maybe you haven't, but uh, uh, Chariots of the Gods. Remember that? Eric von Daniken had a theory that the Bible and all kinds of these, that, that it all came from extraterrestrial beings who came down in spaceships and left evidence of their having been to Earth. I saw a movie about this or all kinds of documentaries. Have you ever heard about any of this? Yeah. And they, I, these ideas are still floating around. He pointed to this verse as proof. I mean, there's, there's us, you know, and there's all these extraterrestrials that are coming. And we were created in the image of these extraterrestrials. Well, it just doesn't line up. Verse 26 and 27 clearly referring to God uh, creating man in his image. So don't you believe it. Uh, Genesis 3.28, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So again, we get that plural kind of speaking. Uh, Genesis 11.6-8, The Tower of, of Babel, The Lord said, If as one, one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. So again, the let us language. God speaking, I believe, within himself, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then a very famous verse, Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So there's a, a you know, a very, you know, first half is singular, the second half is plural. And again, I said an indication, not a full revelation, but an indication of the doctrine of the Trinity. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Remember. Okay, so there's uh, some of the revelation of the um, Trinity in the Old Testament. We also have these angel of the Lord passages. Now, any of you have been going to our Exodus study, you just heard this, okay? And I had it on my computer at home, so I had to type all this out again. I was so frustrated today. You know, we have to get our email back so we can email these files back. But So it was all right. I didn't mind going over these same passages again. They're so wonderful. The angel of the Lord is, I believe, uh, a revelation of the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. There are some interesting things that happen 
around the texts and the discussions of the angel of the Lord. He doesn't behave like any other angel. Angels are what? What is an angel usually? A messenger. That's what the word means in the Greek. Angelos means a messenger. Hebrew says that they're servants. Are not all angels ministering servants sent to serve those who inherit salvation? So when an angel comes, he comes with a message from a higher authority, much like a prophet does. Basically says, thus says the Lord, and that's it. So even the mighty archangel uh, Gabriel uh, only could bring a message. Uh, he wasn't there to do anything. He was just there to reveal the will of God. But the angel of the Lord behaves differently in some key passages. He makes decisions and makes pronouncements that no angel would ever make. Look at this account of Hagar in Genesis 16, uh, beginning at verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar. Now, just stop for a minute. Hagar was Sarah's servant, maidservant. And in a moment of weakness, Sarah had suggested that, uh, that Abraham try to have a child by her. And this was something that was done back then. Uh, I, uh, Jacob also did it with his two maidservants of his two wives. So he was really dealing with four women. And so the 12 tribes of, of Israel came from four different women. But it was the same idea back then that Sarah suggested Hagar as her surrogate or substitute. Well, that totally backfired. It was a terrible, terrible thing uh, because when Ishmael was, was born, um, you know, Sarah just rejected the maidservant, rejected the boy, and, and harshly treated her, and Hagar had to, had to run. And so she flees into the desert, and she's found at that moment by the angel of the Lord. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, now listen, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Now stop there. What's unusual about that statement? Yeah, the angel said he's going to do it. Now, angels don't do that kind of thing. Angels are just messengers. What would, an, what would an ordinary angel have said? The Lord will increase your descendants. And that would have been normal business for an angel to give that kind of a message. But this angel doesn't say that. He says, I will multiply your descendants so that they are too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. So she calls the angel of the Lord uh, God, the God who sees me. And she, in the text, Moses writing says it was the Lord who spoke to her. So here there's a very tight identification between the Lord and the angel of the Lord. Do you see that in the text? You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Do you see that? She says, I've seen the one who sees me. She's referring to the angel of the Lord. Okay? Again, we get the same thing in Genesis 22, perhaps even stronger there. You remember the account that God tested Abraham, gave him a test and said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you, at a place where I will show you. So he brings him on a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, and uh, Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain, and you remember the question that little boy Isaac asked as they're about going up. said, here's wood and fire, but where's the what? Where's the sacrifice? And what was Abraham's answer? The Lord will provide the sacrifice. Well, the Lord provided the sacrifice, but it was really the angel of the Lord that did it. So the angel of the Lord, just as Abraham is about to obey God, and this is the hardest thing he's ever been asked to do, bound his son and he's about to plunge a knife into him, and, and the angel of the Lord calls out to him and, and says, don't harm the boy. You know, for now I know that you fear God because you haven't withheld from me your son, your only son. That's what the angel of the Lord says. Now, I didn't quote that because I'm going to get to the next part, which is better. And I didn't want your outline to be 43 pages trying to save the church money. But anyway, the fact is it was the angel of the Lord who said, you have not withheld from me your only son. And then the ram and thickets revealed. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham uh, from heaven a second time. I swear by myself. Do you see that? declares the Lord that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. What is that? 
What did the angel of the Lord do here? What, did, what does he do? Swears by himself. He swear, well, who is he? Well, he's the second person in the Trinity, I think. He has the right to swear by himself. And this is a very point that the author of Hebrews picks up on because he intensifies the oath by swearing by himself since there's no one greater for him to swear by. This is very strange behavior for an angel, but not for the angel of the Lord. Okay? Look at the next one. Exodus 3, we've already talked about this. Some of you have been studying with us on Sunday evenings. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight while the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Stop there. The angel of the Lord appears to Moses in flames of fire within the bush and then God calls to Moses from within the bush. The, the second phrase, from within the bush, identifies God with the angel of the Lord. Do you see that? The fact that Moses added that God called to him from within the bush links together the angel of the Lord and God. You see that? And so God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, if what I'm saying is true, that this is the second person of the Trinity, this is Jesus saying this. This is Jesus saying, I am the God of Abraham. That's incredible, isn't it? But that's what we believe. That's what the doctrine of the Trinity is teaching. It was Jesus who is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so when the Samaritan woman said, are you greater than our father Jacob? What is the answer of this text? I am the God of your father Jacob. That's how much greater than Jacob I am. Yes, I'm greater than Jacob. I am his God. I am his creator. That is Jesus. Exodus 23, 20 and 21. The Lord says through Moses, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion. Stop there. Now, who is the Lord talking about here? Just from the text. Just look at the text. Who is he talking about? He said, I will send who? Who is he going to send? An angel. That's all it says. But then he says, don't rebel against him because why? Why should you not rebel against this angel? Because he won't forgive you. <laughs> okay? Is that a big deal? Well, it is if he is Jesus to whom has been committed judgment because he is the Son of Man. If he is the judge of all the earth, it makes a big difference if he doesn't forgive you. Did the Jews rebel against Jesus? Oh, in a huge way. And he will not forgive that rebellion. And yet he still has his people, Romans 9, who are Jews who trust in him and believe in him. But that's why Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart because his own people are rejecting Jesus. They're spurning him and turning their backs on him. But God said, do not rebel against him because he will not forgive you. And then what's the next thing he says? My name is in him? That's strange. Does God just give his name around like this? Not this way. Not this way. My name is in him. Very, very significant. It's going to connect to our baptismal formula we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons, right? My name is in him is a precursor, I think, to the doctrine of the Trinity. Do you see that? Okay. And then here is fulfillment of the very thing that God the Father had just spoken. Judges chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your forefathers. Stop there. Who is speaking now? The angel of the Lord. And what is he claiming? First of all, that he did what? Brought he brought them up. And second of all, what did he do? He brought them up into the land that what? He swore to give them. The angel of the Lord swore to give to the forefathers? Yes, he did. This is the God of Abraham. And he is the one who swore to give this land to the forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And so the angel of the Lord is rebuking Israel for disobeying him. So this, the, all of the angel of the Lord passages like this are very strong indications uh, of the Trinity, aren't they? Also, I want to say at this early stage that there's an intimate connection between the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Do you see the two of them? Can, you, you can't unravel them. And so the next step, if you want to prove the doctrine of the Trinity, you have to go from believing in one God, which Jews and Muslims do, to believing next, the next major step is believing what? 
the deity of Christ. You must accept the deity of Christ. And once you make that step, it's really a short step to accept the deity also of the Holy Spirit and believe the doctrine of the Trinity. You see that? So we're not going to do a careful study tonight on the deity of Christ. We'll do that in its proper time. But they're very closely related. So all of these passages that we've been looking at really set the stage for Christ himself and the deity of Christ. Another uh, category of passages that show the um, possibility of the Trinity is this Proverbs chapter 8, the word or wisdom of God personified. This is a little bit dangerous because the Jehovah's Witnesses actually use this as their key text in the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 8. The word or wisdom, the Lord brought me wisdom forth as the first of his works. Stop there. Why would that be a kind of a key Jehovah's Witness text? <clears throat> what do they teach about Jesus? What do Jehovah's Witnesses teach about Jesus? He's a created being and really the first created being. And they said, do you see right here? It says it right there. The problem is the Hebrew word, kana, actually means the Lord possessed me. He, he owned me. It doesn't mean he created. Bara is the Hebrew word for create. It's not used here. He actually possessed me as the first of his works. He owned me. I'll tell you what. I had a wonderful revelation today that's related to my pro-life sermon that I'm going to preach a week from Sunday. I'm so excited to do it. But it's based on Psalm 139, verse 13. The King James Version says, Thou hast possessed my reins. I had the hardest time understanding that. Now I do. Wait until a week from Sunday. We will do it then. Okay? But anyway, I actually think that this is language speaking about the, about the deity of Christ. Because you take the concept of Proverbs 8 and they move over seamlessly to Colossians 1. The fact that God created all things through Christ. And in Christ was the word that God used to create the universe. Listen and think about Christ as you read this. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was appointed from eternity from the beginning before the world began. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the earth or its fields or any dust of the world. I was there when he set the earth in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters could not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was the craftsman at his side. Think about that. I mean, it really is father and son working together in the creation of the universe. And Jesus is the craftsman at the side of his father. Remember what Jesus said in John 5, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. And Paul spoke about Timothy. You know, I have no, in Philippians, I think chapter 2, he says, I have no one else like him because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the kingdom. And so you've got the sense of the father and the son working together, making the universe. Isn't that a beautiful thought? So I was a craftsman to decide. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, delighting in mankind. What a beautiful picture of Christ, delighting in the creation of the world. And then there are various verses which are, we're going to visit again when we study the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, sorry, the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And these are Old Testament verses in, uh, in which different persons are called God or Lord and are distinction, distinct, dis, in distinction uh, from other persons called God or Lord in the same verse. In other words, there seem to be two gods in the same verse. Okay? Look, for example, at Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7. Your God, your, sorry, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Too many gods in this verse. You see why? Because he calls the king, the ruler, God in the first verse. Do you see that? Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. But then in the second verse, he says that God, your God, will set you above your companions. That's two gods. How do you end up with two gods? Well, either you take the word Elohim and, and lower it and say that this is just human language for a mighty person, a king, or whatever. Or you do what the author of Hebrews does and quote it as evidence of the deity of Christ. Jesus is the God, and his God, his Father, set him above all the human race as king over us all. And by the way, these two verses, this one in Psalm 110, and also Daniel 7 were quoted by Jesus as evidence of his own deity. So we're in solid ground here. Solid ground. All right, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Why is that proof or precursor to the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, David wrote the psalm, right? 
David wrote the psalm. It's considered messianic. In other words, that a, an anointed one, the son of David, is the one that he's thinking about. But what does he call him in the verse? The Lord, Yahweh, says to who? My Lord. Now, that's problematic. It's very, very difficult. Jesus points this out and said, if David, speaking by the Spirit, calls his son Lord, how can he be his son? Now, you have to understand the Jewish mindset. The son is never greater than the father. Never. Because the Bible says, the Ten Commandments say, honor your father and mother, right? David here is honoring his own son, actually worshiping him, calling him my Lord. And Jesus put a, quite a poser to his own generation. Please explain to me how the Messiah can be son of David if he calls him my Lord. And the text in Matthew 22 said, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Because the questions he asked were ten times tougher than the questions they asked him. All right? And they could not understand how David could worship his own son. They couldn't accept it. What they didn't understand was the doctrine of the incarnation and of the Trinity. You see that? The Lord said to my Lord. And by the way, um, the uh, Hebrew works this way. The phrase my Lord is just one little appendage at the end of the word Adon turns it into Adonai, my Lord. So just a couple little squiggles of the pen that God inspired David to write and it turned it very problematic. Just those little squiggles of the pen. And he said, the Lord said to the Lord. All right, that would have been fine because David could call his own descendant the Lord because he's going to be the king. But he didn't say the Lord. He said, the Lord said to my Lord, the one I honor, the one I worship. Then it becomes difficult. So that's the perfection of the word of God. And then Malachi 3, 1 and 2. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or like a launderer's soap. This is We could be singing Handel's Messiah here because this is exactly one of the verses. I'll tell you what, some of the greatest Old Testament verses are sung about in the Messiah, including this one. Why is this proof of the deity of Christ and therefore of the Trinity? Well, who's speaking when he says, I will send my messenger? Who do you think is speaking at that point? The Lord. the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, right? He's going to send his messenger. So the messenger is coming. Someone is coming. There's a coming person. And he's going to come to his temple, right? And, and who can abide the day of his coming? And who can stand before him when he comes? So we're talking about someone who's coming, Right? But what does the next verse say? Then suddenly, what? The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. So that verse identifies who's coming. The Lord. It's a problem. Okay? So the Lord is sending the Lord. Precursor to the doctrine of the Trinity. You see that? And this is exactly why Mark quotes it at the very beginning of his gospel. That you didn't know was in there, but Mark 1, 2, he quotes this. And it's strong evidence of the deity of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit personified and seemed to be distinct from God. For example, Isaiah 48:16. And now the Sovereign Lord has sent me with His Spirit. You see that? So He's sending me, whoever me is, the Anointed One, uh, with His Spirit. Some say that that is openly a statement of the Trinity. The Sovereign Lord has sent me, namely the Messiah, with His Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit in one verse. And then there's the, the most striking of all. In my opinion hands down the most striking of all and and that is the son of man passage in Daniel 7 I had a long plane flight back from China two years ago two summers ago with a uh, Jewish lady Jack remembers this that poor lady sitting next to me well and the next to the window she was trapped nowhere to go um, but I went easier on her we, we talked about lighthearted things in addition to intensive Old Testament Bible study um, and we don't need, I didn't need the New Testament, you know. Realize the apostles preached the gospel from the Old Testament. It's all there, brothers and sisters. It's all there. They did it. Remember what Paul did? He went into the synagogues and reasoned from the scriptures day by day with those who happened to be there, right? What scriptures? Old Testament. It can be done. And so uh, she was born in Israel. She was Jewish, uh, more secular or cultural Jewish than religious. But she had a lot of rabbi friends. She lived in New York City with a lot of Jewish people. And she said she had a rabbi. And I said, well, listen, do me a favor. When you get home, when you land finally in New York and see him again, please ask him who the Son of Man is in Daniel 7 and see what he says. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'll show you what I mean. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, Daniel has a vision. 
As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, who do you think the Ancient of Days is? Who do you think a Jew is going to think the Ancient of Days is? Yeah, it's the Lord. It's God himself. He's the judge of all the earth. He took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books are open. What do you think this is depicting? This is judgment day. There's no question about it. The court is seated, the books are open. And so here's this ancient of days seated on the throne. I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Uh, if you want to know what I think about that, get the tape. I've already preached on Daniel 7. But uh, this is the, the beast, I believe, the Antichrist, the other beast uh, governments have been stripped of their authority, etc. Now, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, that right there is very interesting because clouds identify deity to the Jews. They really do. And so here's this one, and he's riding on the clouds. And yet he's one like a son of man, meaning he's a human figure. One like a son of man. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The son of man is therefore not who in this passage? He's not the Ancient of Days because he's led into his presence. The son of man comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days. So we've got God, the Ancient of Days, seated on, seated on the throne, and in comes this son of man led into his presence. Okay, fine. So, the Son of Man comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days. Yes, but watch what happens. He, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. That's troublesome, but still, it's not too bad because maybe he's going to be made a powerful ruler or king. We're not done yet. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Now, that's it. That cannot happen. It can't. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods beside me. Jesus said to the devil... Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. All right. What I did was I looked in the King James Version, the RSV, the NAS, and they all translate the word worship here, serve. Okay? Now, a Jew would say, okay, all the nations will serve Him. Yes, but wait a second. This word, everywhere else that it's used in the Bible, means worship. And it's used something like eight or ten times in the book of Daniel. And in every case, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods or serve the idol that he set up. Same word. And, and Nebuchadnezzar says several times, why won't you serve my gods? Daniel, in the lion's den, um, Darius comes and says, has the God whom you serve been able to rescue you? This means worship, folks. Why is this a problem for the, for the modern, modern Jew? Why would the modern Jewish person find this verse difficult? Well, they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't believe in the Trinity. Now, I'll tell you why I know this is the best verse in the whole Old Testament on the deity of Christ. You know why? Because Jesus quoted it to get himself killed. This is the very verse that Jesus quoted. When the high priest said, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then he says, I am. Uh-oh. That was a problem right there. When he said, I am, he was claiming what? He was claiming to be deity. And then he said... And in the future, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and seated at the right hand of the Mighty One. He's referring to the Son of Man vision. By the way, what did Jesus call himself? Son of Man. He's identifying with the, with the Daniel Son of Man. Not the Ezekiel Son of Man, but with the Daniel Son of Man. And why? Because the incarnation was the new thing. The fact that he took on a human body was the shocker. And so here is this human figure, but all nations are worshiping him. Yes. Oh, Matthew uh, 20... Seven at the end of Matthew 27 when he... Uh, is it 27? Okay. No, it's all right. Um, no, he's already on the cross by Matthew 27. Hang on a second. <clears throat> Good question. Yeah, Matthew 26, um, verse 64 uh, and 65. Yeah, 64. And the high priest had Scripture quoted to him. And what should he have done at that moment? What should he have done? fallen on his face and worshiped Jesus. That's what he should have done. What did he do? He tore his clothes and screamed blasphemy. That's the Jewish reaction to the deity of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus asked them, who do you think, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Son of David, they said. 
And then Jesus said, well, then how is it that David worships him? <laughs> and they couldn't answer. They, ha they had too low a view of the Messiah. He would just be a human king and the Spirit of the Lord would be on him like he was on David and he'd be powerful and mighty and military and all that. They thought too low of him. But their own scriptures testified to the deity of the Messiah. And Jesus pointed them out, every one of them, and they couldn't handle their own Bible. And what's so sad is that they then decide to walk away from the Bible. They won't believe the Bible anymore. And Paul talked about that, that anytime Moses is read, that means scripture, really, a veil is over them and they just cannot see what we all can see so plainly. This must be Jesus. And so we see very clearly the precursors to the Son of Man. If you're ever witnessing to a Jewish person, ask them who the Son of Man is in Daniel 7 and talk to them, show it to them and read it through with them. There is no good answer other than that he's God. He's Jesus. Now we have a more complete revelation. Yes, sir. Yeah. Did you find that in any commentaries? I've seen that a couple times where they say the ancient of days is Jesus. In Revelation, he is. In Revelation, he is Jesus. In Daniel 7, he can't be Jesus. He can't be. But it shouldn't bother you because the, the Father, Son, and Spirit kind of pass titles to one another. You know, they're all holy, they're all righteous, they're all, you know, creator. Yeah, you've really got to nail down that the Ancient of Days is not Jesus. Because, you know, then who, if the Ancient of Days is Jesus, then who's the Son of Man? I don't know then. I have no answer for that one. It can't be God the Father because God the Father would never be called the Son of Man. So the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 has got to be God the Father. So, I know that's a little tricky because in the book of Revelation it's different. Okay, now, more complete revelation of the Trinity is in the New Testament. Now, we've already mentioned this. The centerpiece is the deity of Christ. The brunt of much of the New Testament is to produce faith in Christ as truly God in the flesh. Thus, the deity of Christ is the centerpiece to the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, understand what I mean by centerpiece. What I mean is that's the stumbling block. That's where people can't accept it. Um, all of the um, rationalists, the deists, the Thomas Paine type people, what did they all think of Jesus? What was Jesus to Thomas Jefferson? A good, a good teacher, good moral man. I actually bought at Williamsburg a couple of weeks ago Thomas Jefferson's Bible. I've wanted to have it forever for a while. Uh, his New Testament, which he weeds out all, all miracles and all the divine talk. Weeds it all out and makes Jesus of Nazareth what he saw him to be a good moral teacher. Too bad C.S. Lewis hadn't been born yet to show how ridiculous that is with his Lord, liar, lunatic thing. <laughs> Jesus claimed to be God and good moral teachers don't do that. But um, anyway, key passages on the Trinity as a whole, there are many. Matthew 3, 16 and 17, Jesus' baptism. <clears throat> as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So we have there the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. Modalism cannot work here. There can't be just one God uh, you know, revealed at different times. But I've got an even better verse for modalism, so we'll deal with that later. Uh, Matthew 28:19 says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and this is the key, in the name singular. You see that? In the, and we've already alluded to this. There is one name, God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Stand under the one name. Now, name means something. When you call on the name of the Lord, you're calling on God as He's revealed Himself. He has revealed himself as triune. That's what we're saying. So we're baptizing people into a Trinitarian faith. They must believe in Father, Son, and Spirit in order to be saved. This is a salvific or a saving doctrine. You, you, you understand that, don't you? Do, do you know why? Jesus said, you know, I, I, I could show this to you. I'm, I'm going to do it in my Exodus study, but take a minute and look. It's in, I believe in John 8. It's not on your outline here, but you've got to believe this. This is not an option. In John 8, um, where does he say it? Yeah, here it is. Verse 24. Look at 824. This, is, this really bothers me what the English translations do. And they all do it. King James, they all do the same thing. But look at 824. Somebody read 824 for me, if you would. All right, now, hang on a second. Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. Is that significant? Yeah. If you heard that from the lips of Jesus, would that bother you? 
He is the judge of all the earth. And if he's saying, you will die in your sins, that is serious. What does it mean to die in your sins? That means go to hell. This is a very serious issue. But then what does it say next? Well, sadly, no English translation deals with it properly. Unless you believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. That's what it says. But what does the NIV do with it? What does the NAS do with it? What is that? Well, they all put some words in there to help. Take the words out. Do you see little brackets in there? Take them out. It says, unless you believe that ego ami, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What is that saying? What is Jesus saying there? If you don't believe that he is God, what will happen to you? You'll go to hell. You will die in your sins. This is not an optional doctrine. This is essential. You must believe in the deity of Christ. And, uh, you know, we, we, we can't give up on this. Um, pluralism is encroaching. It's coming closer and closer and closer. And these are the issues that are going to divide us from our neighbors. These are the issues that are going to divide us from the rest of the world. The deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Uh, Dr. Moeller got on the Donahue show on this very topic. Never do. I, I, I don't know why anyone would. I admire his courage. But that the man holds all the key buttons. And anytime you're making a good point, he can go to a commercial break. I mean, there, but, you know, I prayed for him and prayed that God would bless and strengthen him through that. But it was on this very issue of the exclusivity of Christ and the doctrine of the deity of Christ and all that. It's the very thing the world can't accept. But we must uphold it. Okay? So the deity of Christ is essential. All right, back to your chart, your page on page 4. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. There are different kinds of gifts. This is talking about spiritual gifts here. Different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that spiritual gifts, the giving of spiritual gifts to individual Christians is done by whom? The Spirit, yes, but is that all he says? The Trinity, really. He's saying that the Spirit gives them, the Lord gives them, and God gives them. And so this is a direct activity of the Trinity. Now, in Ephesians, it ascribes it more to Jesus. You know, that Jesus gave gifts to men. But it's all the same. These verses, this is a Trinitarian formula here. You got your spiritual gifts from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That's what Paul's saying here. All right, then the benediction which you've heard before, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's a Trinitarian formula. You see that? <coughs> Father, Son, and Spirit. Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Well, you kind of have to work through the words, but you get the Trinity. You see that? One Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. It's a Trinitarian formula. All right, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Now, this will end up being an important verse when I teach you the, difference of the differences in the roles of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father makes the plan. The Son executes the plan. The Spirit applies the plan individually and directly to us. That's how it works. That's the division of labor in the Trinity. So the Father makes the plan. The Son carries it out. The Spirit applies it directly to you. But uh, this is a Trinitarian formula. And then Jude 20 uh, and 21. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So again, Holy Spirit, God, and Lord Jesus Christ, Trinitarian. Now, we've already covered this one, three statements summarize the biblical teaching. If I had you turn over, would you be able to tell me what they are? Turn over your sheet and tell me the three, three statements that are essential to the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, that's the, the good thing about Acts. It's not actually a seminary course. You know, you don't have any papers, no tests, nothing. But this is what the doctrine of the Trinity is that there is one and only one God. He has eternally existed in three persons and that each person is distinct from one another. Father is not the Son, the Son. The triangle, I found, is the best way to get these together, you know, with the one God in the center, Father, Son, and Spirit, and is and is not. You'll get all three that way, okay? 
First thing is that God is three persons. Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Father. Father is not the Spirit, nor is the Spirit the Father. Son is not the Spirit, nor is the Spirit the Son. All right, John 1, 1 and 2 teaches it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was... What's the next word? With God. And the Word was God. That gets to the fact that the Son is God. But this verse, the first part, the word with, teaches us what? That the Father is not the Son. Do you see that? Because you don't use the word with if you only have one person. Have you ever been with yourself? I don't know. Maybe you have. I don't know. <laughs> there are some people that are not with themselves. You know, it's a, you ask questions and people are staring blankly. But uh, no, anyway. Probably never try to be yourself or whatever. But I think this is a clear indication, this word with, that the Father and the Son are separate persons. Any verse showing Jesus praying clearly implies a distinction of persons. Do you see that? Do you see that, that Jesus' prayer life destroys modalism? Modalism teaches that there's one God who at different times revealed himself in different ways. That's the, you know, the analogy of I'm a father, I'm a son, and I'm a pastor, something like that. Listen to what it says in John 17, 24. Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. The fact that Jesus is praying at all shows that the Father and the Son are distinct. Do you see that? But then also, um, the fact that he speaks of a relationship and he says, you have given me a glory, etc. All of this implies the separate personhood of the Father and the Son. But even better is this one. I, I don't know how modals could ever deal with John 12, 28. <laughs> Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, a modalist, Jesus doesn't have the time to get up to heaven and answer himself back. It's a ventriloquist. See, there's one in every group. You're not really tempted to be a modalist, are you? I would think John 12, 28 would be pretty convincing. The Father and the Son are having a conversation, aren't they? They're having a conversation, and so modalism is impossible. All right. Also, many passages refer to Jesus as our advocate or our lawyer, our intercessor. Well, if the Father and the Son are the same person, how in the world could he do that? With whom is he interceding? How is he acting as an advocate with himself? It doesn't make any sense. In 1 John 1, 2 and 1, uh, it says, My little... Children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. You see, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus is there next to the Father, at the right hand of the Father, and interceding for us. It says also the same in Hebrews 7.25. or 7:25. Romans 8 says that both the Son and the Spirit uh, act as advocate. Romans 8.26 says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness... We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So there's the Spirit interceding. Well, if the Spirit is the Father, how can the Spirit intercede to the Father? You see that? They're distinct persons. And then Romans 8:34, Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. All right, we're going to stop there. Next time, God willing, we're going to talk about the personality of the Spirit and we'll go on from there um, to finish, hopefully, the Doctrine of the Trinity maybe next week. Any questions that you may have on what we've looked at tonight? So, Jill, if you have a chance to talk to uh, your Muslim friend, you can bring the outline. And Well, science isn't going to bring her to the Trinity. Only faith will do that. So. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to study this doctrine. We're grateful for the way... Really, I find that this doctrine humbles me. It uh, shows the limits of my own intellect and understanding. I cannot fully understand you. You can fully understand me, but I can't fully understand you. You are high and lifted up, far above us, O Lord, and you fill heaven and earth, and you are so great. And I pray that at least an expanded uh, sense of the majesty and the person and the mystery of God would help us face our own life problems, realizing that this same powerful and mighty God who's so hard to understand and so far, far above us 
has put all of His power at our disposal for our benefit. Because uh, You are for us, as the Scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us? We thank You that You, the powerful triune God, are for us. And we thank You that the Father, Son, and Spirit are always in total harmony with one another. Never a shade of disagreement or doubt. And this is a precursor and a picture of our own perfect fellowship in heaven. That we would be one just as the Father and the Son are one. We look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.